Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Boris Gartner, the CEO of La Liga North America. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including my news stories handicapping the U.S. cities bidding to host games for World Cup 2026. I'll also be on site in Seattle this week writing about the CCL final. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Boris Gartner in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? So, Grant, is my city getting the World Cup or no? As of right now, and I'll tell you this without making you buy a subscription, Chris, though you have, so I appreciate I do, yes. that. Uh, Miami is on my list of 10. Yeah. Um, and that could change between now and the announcement in mid-June. But right now, I think it's actually a pretty solid bet. I, I think the, the big competition is Orlando for Miami and... I think Miami is a more attractive choice there. I think more people from FIFA, member nations of FIFA, want to go to Miami than they do to Orlando. Good stadium, good field. Um, some complications. Uh, the annual F F1 race, which actually is taking place next week, but in early May, is actually going to be an issue in 2026 because it takes place right around the stadium. Yeah, And um, they're supposed to be, according to the rules from FIFA, which are probably fungible, but um, that they have full access to a stadium quite a while before the, the actual World Cup games start because they have to get things ready for the World Cup. And so if it's only like three weeks before a World Cup is happening... That might create some issues, but I'm told that in the end, more likely that FIFA ends up putting the World Cup games in Miami than Orlando. Fantastic. Uh, and it's actually interesting, too, because not only is there a Formula One race that's on the campus of the stadium, there's also an international tennis tournament that takes place for two <laughs> weeks, like two months before the Formula One race. So they've completely turned that venue into uh, a, a venue that hosts a variety of events, although Miami could potentially hold like a World Cup in and of itself if we keep building soccer stadiums, uh, I'm sure you saw that the 99-year lease for Inter-Miami's new stadium got approved by the City of Miami Commission this week. So uh, soccer infrastructure is not lacking uh, going forward in South Florida. I'm excited to spend the next 99 years of my life watching games, uh, for sure, in Miami in their new stadium. I we definitely won't be underwater long. towards the end of that lease. Even if I'm 144 years old by then. Um, I'm a little disappointed you haven't commented. I'm wearing my CONCACAF hat mm. during this, and I realize that our podcast listeners aren't seeing the video, but I love this hat. I'm going to be wearing it in Seattle when I arrive on Monday for the Wednesday Champions League final. Yeah, I, I, I had to figure out which gag I was going to go with from the beginning, so I, I decided to try and drive subscriptions to GrantWalt.com instead of uh, making note of your hat. When we get to CCL later in the program, I'll be sure to make note of your uh, of your comedy hat. I'm literally wearing my CONCACAF hat right now in my Wawa hoodie. I've seen you in that hoodie, I think, in every road trip that that we've been on. I've caught you in Orlando. Yes. I've caught you in various places. And that hoodie has been with you everywhere. If I can get the Wawa sponsorship at some point <laughs> for the podcast, apparently, like literally, this is one of my conversations. I've had a lot of phone conversations over the past couple of weeks with people for these 
columns I've written about handicapping the race for World Cup 2026 cities. And I'm told that Philadelphia's bid, I literally laughed the other day out loud, has like big influence from Wawa. Huh. How about that? <laughs> I was like, oh, they're into soccer. Okay, <laughs> let's get that sponsorship. <laughs> And those dollars running running through football with Grant Wall, you certainly are an unpaid endorser already. So why not why not make that a formal relationship? I like it. Um, lots to talk about internationally, domestically. So let's dive in. And in the Premier League over the weekend, Liverpool and Man City keep pace, both get wins. Liverpool against Newcastle United, Man City against Leeds. And I am starting to wonder, because a couple of weeks ago, when Liverpool and City played each other in the league and it ended up a tie, I still felt like Liverpool was the better team over the last couple of months and that City would slip up, even tie at some point. And now I'm starting to think that both these teams are just so much better than every other team in this league and they're just going to win out and City's going to win the league by one. Am I thinking correctly. I, I do think so. I, certainly the Champions League distraction ends this Wednesday. Uh, so when Man City play Real Madrid, that'll be the end of that. Man City were able to make four changes this week, including winning the game without Kevin De Bruyne in the starting lineup, which is really valuable. I think in years past, they've run him into the ground and that's part of, been, that, that's part of his injury uh, issue in the past. But yeah, I mean, it's a bit difficult for me to separate just because I'm a fan of one of the teams, and I always feel like Liverpool in these run-ins have been the stronger team, um, and I feel like Liverpool are kind of inevitable, and I think the, the one thing for me that separates that is I just think that Liverpool are stronger defensively, and I don't necessarily mm. mean Allison and Virgil van Dijk. I mean, when Newcastle tries to play out, they find it so difficult to string five passes together, I think with more intensity and in a more difficult way than Man City can do. I, I We saw in the third minute of the game against Leeds, Joao Cancelo slips on the halfway line, and Leeds probably should have gone in and scored. <laughs> yeah. I thought in the last kind of 15 minutes of the first half of that game against Leeds, uh, Man City were vulnerable at times, and Leeds were able to get their crowd going, and they're able to throw counter punches and, and be involved in the game. I think Jesse Marsh kind of has a lot to be proud of, although we'll get to the relegation fight later. It's not about being proud at this point. It's about getting results. Um, but either way, I, I do think that Man City are slightly more vulnerable, but that might not necessarily matter when you look at the fixtures that they have remaining. And when you look at just, they're, they're, we're out of time. There's four games left. I think Man City can probably get those last four wins to get over the line and win the title. I'm starting to think that. I didn't think that before. I am now. Jesse Marsh, who, who we love, by the way, um, fist pumping to his home fans after a 4-0 loss. <laughs> To Man City. <laughs> and I get, I get that he thought their effort leads was good and that this wasn't necessarily your classic 4-0 game. But I'm a little worried about Leeds right now, especially due to the other results this weekend because they were terrible for Leeds. So Leeds loses to City. Burnley wins again under Michael Jackson. And <laughs> I think he goes by Mike for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, and and then also too, you had Everton beat Chelsea. Um, and and so in recent weeks, Everton has beaten Chelsea and Man United. And you know Chelsea's got a road game at Leeds coming up as well. And I just don't feel as confident that Leeds is going to get a win out of that game as I did feeling 
you know, watching this Everton Chelsea game today. And so that makes me concerned about Leeds in particular now, because I think all the 538 scenarios are saying now that the most likely third team to be relegated is Leeds United. And yet, I just don't agree with that. Like, I think that Everton's level of performance, and yes, I understand I'm saying this off the back of wins over Manchester United and Chelsea, although those are not the same achievements that they were even three months ago. Um, I just think that Everton more often put in poor performances. I think they are the worst of the three teams. They have the fewest points, and I think they're going to be relegated. But that doesn't mean, I mean, Leeds right now have a couple of, Really difficult games coming up. They're away at Arsenal and they're home with Chelsea. Those are and I, I looked at this three game stretch and I said there, there's got to be three points somewhere in there, and that's really hard to pull off. I understand that's a difficult ask, but I think away at Arsenal can be a place where they get points. I know that sounds crazy, but just I, I think sometimes their style of play is almost better suited to playing against bigger teams because they're pressing and they're trying to cause them problems and then trying to hit directly on the counter. If you're going against teams that maybe have a bit more of a reserve shape, then maybe those chances aren't there. But Leeds are absolutely in it. I still think that Everton are going to go down and I think that Everton are playing the worst football, which is funny because they've achieved some big results in these last few games. But I think what Burnley is doing is absolutely astonishing. Uh, the fact that everyone thought that by letting go of Sean Dyche, they let go of their relegation specialist. And he's, and you know the, the interim manager, and they're being criticized for not having a plan. They're, by the way, under American ownership now. Um, they don't have an interim plan. And this guy who is the under-23s coach that no one's ever heard of before has taken 10 points from 12. They've won three out of their last four. Burnley this season won four of their first 30. So it's been an unbelievable run of form from them coming back from a goal behind away at Watford. And I think Burnley are going to be comfortably safe in the end, which is hilarious considering. But yeah, Leeds are properly in it. It's it's crazy. And, and I kind of, I don't like the idea of firing your coach in the stretch run with if you're in you know danger of being relegated generally. And yet from what we've seen with Burnley and with Leeds, it's producing positive results. And that gets into a whole psychology thing with players about like what causes players to get with it. In theory, the mere threat of relegation, no matter who your coach is, should be enough to get you moving. But maybe it does require firing the coach. And if that's the case, that sort of goes against my whole way of looking at things. Yeah, of, of club building, right? That you want to have a philosophy. And I guess if there was going to be any team, it would have been Leeds. But I guess maybe in year one in the Premier League, they probably would have stuck with Bielsa. But I think when it kind of became clear that Bielsa wasn't going to come back, they had already sounded out Jesse Marsh as being ready to take over then you give it a go. Watford, we know we're going to change managers. Um, Norwich, I'm kind of surprised just because they've gone up and down with a manager before. I'm surprised they didn't stick with Daniel Farka. But yeah, the bottom five teams have all sacked managers. So um, they, they've all tried to get this same bounce. It's only going to work for two of them. And I, I do think that there probably is something to, you know, if you're in this kind of scrap, just change the manager and hope that there's kind of a new emotional feeling. I think one of the things that I've heard most often when I hear players interviewed about being in relegation fights is the feeling at 1-0 down. That you've conceded, you can talk about building yourself back up again, that you can talk about all of these things that everyone knows that they're in it. But then when you go 1-0 down, 
what happens from there. And I guess a new manager is probably more likely to get that emotional response, especially somebody like a, a firebrand like Jesse Marsh who's just there to pump everyone up. Although I see, I've seen a few people, Grant, I'll be curious what you think about this, have, have questioned in startorial choices of wearing jeans on the <laughs> sideline. And frankly, I agree. I think, uh, you know, in, in the Premier League, you're either a tracksuit guy or a suit guy, but there's not really a whole lot of room in between. You know, I don't have many thoughts about it. Hmm. Like, I, I love the fact that I could actually, if I wanted to, text Jesse Marsh right now and say, like, what's up with the attire? <laughs> but and, you, you, and, don't, you don't want to burn your capital with Jesse Marsh but, on his jeans? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> he's got things he, to worry about now. He's a good working class Wisconsin guy. Yeah. So, like, it doesn't surprise me necessarily. Necessarily, but um, you know, and by the way, nowhere near the the attire offenses that Pep Guardiola has perpetrated mm. on on the Premier League. He like, loves that time- sweater, the sweater with the like the the badge that has like it's kind of like intentionally ill design with MDCR. <laughs> he loves that sweater. I've seen it like six times this season. It's pretty funny though. I mean, I would say this. Not a great weekend for Josh Sargent. Comes off, at, comes on as a sub. Comes off injured. Norwich gets relegated officially. I had someone tweeting us like, "Oh, you and Landon Donovan are like really depressed now because Norwich is one of the greatest teams in the world, according to Landon, <laughs> on par with Barcelona now being relegated officially." Um, and in poor Josh Sargent has now been relegated two seasons in a row. Yeah. Like in Germany and now in in England. And that's got to be harsh, man. Like it's like he's got to be so dead tired of playing for crappy teams. Yeah. I mean, he had the chance, I think, in Germany to go to a team higher up the table, but it would have been probably some effort uh, to get into the team. I think Norwich has probably been as big of a disaster of a move as is possible. Um, When you look at I mean, in some ways, he represented hope for Norwich because they have spent more in, the tra- in this transfer window than they have in previous times when they've come up. He was one of the players that came in that didn't really help. And not only does it not, not only does it feel like a wasted year where you get relegated again, he's not even playing in his preferred position. And so you're not even getting the Premier League reps of playing up top and trying to score goals. That's still Timo Pukki. And so he's playing out on the right wing and who knows if Dean Smith is going to continue to put him out in the right wing. And who knows if any other coach is going to put him out up top. And if he's going to continue as a winger, you can't really bring him into the national team as a striker. And it, you, then you really start to wonder, where does his career go from here? There's always manifold scenarios that can play out, right? It's, you know, how, how when a player goes to Europe... Like, what's the best case scenario? You think of like Weston McKenney, right? Where he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's at a German club, he's helping them in, in big games, and then he gets moved to Juventus. And that can be a disaster, but it hasn't been. And so the, like, there, there are many ways in which a career can play. I think of like Ricardo Pepe, who I think right now has taken very much a negative step. And maybe he'll be better with an Augsburg team that looks like it's going to stay up. But maybe this is the wrong path. And I do think that Maybe Josh Sargent was never going to succeed at a really high European level, but in terms of the choices and the clubs that he's been at, it could not possibly have gone worse for him. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, actually. A couple other European things I want to get into from the weekend. Real Madrid clinches the title in La Liga. 
35th title for Real Madrid. My favorite photo of the weekend is Carlo Ancelotti, the Real Madrid coach, posing with a cigar and shades on <laughs> with David Alaba, Vini Jr., and a couple other guys from the team. And Carlo Ancelotti sort of looks like the coolest coach imaginable there. Yeah, I, I mean, Carlo Ancelotti oddly kind of became the story in a way that he hasn't been since he moved to Real Madrid. Certainly when you look back at his time at Everton, I always felt unconvinced by his work at Everton, and yet now achieving eighth with Everton seems like an impossible feat. But now he is the story because of the fact that he's won each of Europe's top five domestic leagues, you mentioned that cool picture of him, and now we have a, the conversation about what is Carlo Ancelotti's legacy as a big-time manager. And it's interesting because big-time clubs, the kind of 12 or 13 big Champions League clubs, kind of recycle the same coaches because there's a feeling that only a certain kind of personality can manage it. And Ancelotti has always been deemed to be one of them, and so he's gotten the chances at Milan, Paris Saint-Germain, Chelsea, Bayern, Real Madrid twice, and he's had a remarkable CV when you look at the clubs that he's coached, and now he has the silverware to show for it. The thing that I find interesting is that Real Madrid have now won the league at a canter for the second time in three years. Play the fancy lad sound. I saw your face. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> but... It, so it's only the eighth time this century, and I, I had a, I have a Real Madrid fan in my life who loves Cristiano Ronaldo, and he said that Cristiano Ronaldo has now won the same number of La Liga titles as Eden Hazard, because Eden Hazard has won his second La Liga title. It's odd. When you look, go back to 2010, they've only won four titles since then. And you would think that with Bar some of the struggles that Barcelona has, with the way that Spain is framed as Real Madrid versus Barcelona, that they'd win the league more often. But right. this is a substantive achievement, even though they've won the European title 13 times. Um, that the, the fact that they've won the league so comfortably, 15 points clear of anyone else, um, and you have a guy in Ancelotti who's leading the way, and it's kind of been very steady at what could have been a turbulent time post-Ronaldo. Yeah, it's really interesting about Carlo is... Here's a guy who the big complaint about him is that he actually hasn't had as much success in domestic league competitions as he has in the Champions League, where he's the record holder for Champions League victories in, in this era. And, and yet, for a guy who hasn't had supposedly much success in the domestic leagues, he's the first coach to win all five of the top domestic leagues in Europe. So clearly, he's had some success. And the low point, actually, I think, for Carlo was when he went into Bayern Munich right after Pep Guardiola and, and basically was viewed as a failure there and viewed as a guy who the players at Bayern had just gotten through the Pep era and were like, Pep leaves no stone unturned. He spends all this time preparing and the players are, are part of that. And... And Carlo comes in and Carlo's all about managing players and, and doesn't do the things that Pep does. <laughs> and it's interesting, it may be very German, that the response to that was, we don't like this. We don't like this at all. We don't like that, he, that Carlo doesn't prepare us as well as Pep does, that he's more hands-off, that... In comparison to Pep, he's completely different. They're basically at polar extremes. And yet, this Real Madrid team seems to fit Carlo pretty well and appreciates the hands-off approach. And 
and they've had success, right? Especially this season in the league. They're still in a position where they can win the Champions League. And I feel like Carlo, in particular, is in a position to, to really change his legacy to an extent because the, the journey to Everton, like when you're coaching Everton, I, I mean, it's not a bad club, but it's not Real Madrid. It's not Bayern Munich. And so for Carlo to get back to, uh, to Real Madrid and winning La Liga titles and being in contention to win Champions League titles seems like a real rebound for him. Yeah, I mean, Everton. when you move to Everton, it would kind of signal you're out of the big club business. Um, and, yeah. and in some ways, I, I don't think that Real Madrid would have made him option A. I just think that they've been struggling to find a non-Zidane identity for a while that you kind of need someone who is just personality-based, can get, knows, is experienced enough to know what to deal with when you get to Real Madrid. I imagine it's a pretty difficult club to manage. So you just want someone who knows what they're doing with that situation. And I do think that if Karim Benzema is going to get all this credit for the performance that he's had this season, if it's unlocked as a result of... Ancelotti's tactics or the way that he's been able to get Karim Benzema to be the leader of this team. Like, I I don't think you can necessarily uncouple those things. I do think that Ancelotti taking over and Karim Benzema taking off can probably be linked in some way, whatever way it is that you can imagine, because a lot of that team has remained the same. A lot of the players are, are still the same, and Benzema's completely taken off and become probably the best men's player in the world, you'd probably say, uh, if not with Mohamed Salah, uh, uh, towards the end of this season. And or Kevin Dubornik made that conversation, whoever you want to put in there, but I'd probably give it to Benzema at the moment. And I, I think that Ancelotti deserves some credit for it. But I, I think it's interesting when you deal with managers that like don't have like a style of play named after them, like Sorry Ball or, you know, Pep Guardiola, like like that you know that when you watch this team, that this is the tactical idea. This is what they, like, I don't really know what Ancelotti represents from a management standpoint. Even like Ralph Ranić, like, I know what I know what he's about. I know that, like, this is the sort of team that he wants. I, I don't really know that about Ancelotti necessarily. And I feel like that kind of manager is a dying breed where it's just about, like, I heard Gary Neville say when... He went to Spain. They asked him, what's your idea of football? He just said, winning football matches. And I feel like that's not an acceptable answer anymore, but it probably is for Carlo Ancelotti just because it's whatever we do to win. We got to get Carlo on the show at some point. I'm going to work harder at this. I've tried a few times. His wife is from Vancouver. They lived in Vancouver when he was sort of between jobs. Um, speaks good English. I, I, I hope we can do that at some point. Um also, in Europe, uh, over the weekend, rest in peace, Mina Raiola, um, arguably the, the most prominent agent in the soccer world. And there's a few other people like George Mendez, um, who are sort of the Scott Boris of, of European soccer. But Mina Raiola represented some of the biggest players in the game passed away at 54 over the weekend from a pulmonary condition, Dutch Italian. I would suggest reading the stories, sort of obituaries written by uh, Gabriel Marcotti on ESPN for Mina Raiola and Simon Cooper for financial times. It's free, both of those to read and just a, a really fascinating life story. But big impact on the sport and continued to until we lost Mino over the weekend here 
you know, represented Erling Haaland, uh, Paul Pogba, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, um, Delict um, with Juventus, uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan. And it was really interesting. I follow a lot of these guys on social media, on Instagram, and beloved figure to them and, and just reading what they wrote about him over the weekend. And I came in, into contact with Mina Raiola a few times over the years, as you do. I mean, like, in, if you're in soccer journalism and you're writing about big soccer players, you're going to, you know, come into contact with big agents. And so my main contact with Mina Raiola was in 2013 when his client, Mario Balotelli, we got to pose for the cover of Sports Illustrated and agreed to an interview that took place in Miami preseason. And in Mino was an agent uh, who fought for his players. And just the process of me and him arranging for Mario Balotelli to do an interview with me for Sports Illustrated and, and a cover photo. And I, I spent so much time over email explaining to Mina Raiola, like, we don't guarantee 100% covers for Sports Illustrated magazine. Now, this is at a time when Sports Illustrated still came out weekly, and the Sports Illustrated cover meant probably more than it does today. It's a monthly print magazine. I couldn't even tell you who's on the cover of the, <laughs> the most recent monthly Sports Illustrated. To I be couldn't honest. tell you the last time I saw a Sports Illustrated magazine in a in a in a supermarket. Which which pains me greatly. But yeah. anyway, that's a different conversation. But back when Sports Illustrated being on the weekly cover really mattered, still in 2013. I, I had a long conversation with Mino, who was like, my client Mario Bellatelli will only participate in an interview and photo shoot with you if you guaranteed the cover, it, which I hear I heard all the time back in the day from various agents. And it was always a challenge with soccer stories and soccer agents over time when I was at SI, because I tried to explain to them, dude, merely getting a story in Sports Illustrated, cover or not, is an immense challenge because soccer is not that big in the U.S., mm -hmm. my friend. And so instead of being upset that I can't guarantee you a cover, you should be thanking me because I'm getting a story about your client in the National Sports Magazine of the United States. And it was always a push and pull. And so I explained to him, especially when Sports Illustrated was a weekly, we cannot guarantee covers because what if the New York Yankees plane goes down, God forbid? Mm -hmm. That's going to be the cover. So we can't guarantee the cover based on what might happen in the news world. What we can tell you is you've got a decent good chance at being on the cover and you just got to trust us on that. And so finally, after so many emails, I should go back and look at those emails. Like, between me and Mino Raiola, he agreed to let Mario Balotelli speak to me and pose for a photograph that ended up, by the way, being on the cover of SI. Um, but Mino was trying to get the best deal for his client. I get it. And a lot of what you've seen the last couple of days from his clients are, this guy did everything for me. You know, he didn't care about hurting his relationship with clubs. He was willing to walk away from the negotiating table and he really was a change agent figure in the history of soccer globally because he came in 
right after the Bosman rule went into effect, so basically allowing free agency in European soccer in the 90s, so that if a player ran out his contract and became a free agent, he didn't have to be sold with a transfer fee after that to a team in Europe. And so that came at a time when television money increased dramatically in European soccer. And Mina Raiola made a lot of money over the years. When Paul Pogba, his client, went from Juventus to Man United, Mina Raiola got money from Paul Pogba. He got money from Man United. He got money from Juventus. He made like 50 million euros, the agent off that deal. And so if you have issues with agents making way too much money, I get it. But you cannot fault Mina Raiola for leveraging the system as much as possible in trying to get the best deals for his players. Well, and this is one of the interesting things that I've learned over these last few years and just consuming content from Europe and, and learning about the history of the game over there is that soccer or football as business is still actually relatively new concept yes. into major European football, which is staggering considering the amount of money that's there, staggering about staggering considering the amount of money that there is left to acquire, considering that it is the world's game. And just because of where I come from in the United States, where every single dollar is squeezed out of all of our American sports, and we're desperate for another country in the world to become interested in our sports... Basketball is certainly the one that's come closest. Hockey is uh, as an international following. But either way, every American league knows how to make money. And yet, because of that rule, because of you know Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea, and frankly because of Mino Raiola, more football fans have become accustomed to how this is a business, but I guess become accustomed is an understanding rather than liking it. And I think that Mino Raiola was a fairly despised figure, if not necessarily for who he was as a person, for what he represented, which is, you know, the agents being completely in it for themselves, being completely in it for their players, and driving wedges in the worst interest of teams. And I think that's something that, I mean, Mino Raiola's almost kind of became a bad word. Oh, he's a Raiola client. I guess, I guess we're not going to be in for him for several clubs. And I guess in some ways that probably would be a badge of honor for Mino Raiola because it means that, you know, he defends his players so vigorously that <laughs> some clubs don't want to deal with him. But you mentioned kind of the, the obituaries. I remember uh, when Henrik Mkhitaryan was on this podcast, it was one of the first interviews that I was on. I was like, wow, Henrik Mkhitaryan. And you asked him about it. And he's like, yeah, you know, he's a bit out there and sometimes he's tough to get on the phone, but man, that guy fights for me. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting insight into who he was as a person. But I think he represents a really big global force. Even as you mentioned, the last transfer that he's a part of is Erling Haaland reportedly to Manchester City. A huge part of that was, in some ways, it was Mino's transfer more than it was Erling Haaland's transfer because we knew that the release clause was set low so that Erling Haaland can command a massive wage and a massive agent's fee because that was really going to be the only distinguishing part of the bids because we knew the amount of money that was going to Borussia Dortmund. We didn't know how much money was going to Mino and how much right. money was going to Erling Haaland, which goes to Mino. And so I, I, I do think that he is this larger-than-life figure. And I, I do think that the era of the super agent is still here to stay, even though he's no longer with us. But it, it is still a, a, a massive shift in the tectonic plates that he's not around anymore. Totally true. Agree with all of that. Um, I did text Jovan Kirovsky 
in with the LA Galaxy this weekend because uh, just to share my sympathies because he actually got really close to Mino over the years because Jovan signed Ibrahimovic for the Galaxy, and as part of that, Jovan built a really close. Uh, tie with with Mino Raiola and tell some great stories, some fun fun stories about Mino uh, and his experiences with him over the years. But uh, truly larger than life figure, uh, no longer with us at fifty four, uh, which is terribly sad. Anytime someone leaves us that soon, but uh, his legacy I think will last quite a while. Uh, also in Europe this weekend, Women's UEFA Champions League semifinals are over. Barcelona Lyon are going to meet in the final in Turin on May 21st. And we sort of knew that Barcelona was going to advance after the 5-1 over Wolfsburg, but Barcelona looking a little vulnerable um, in a way that they haven't this entire season. This was the team that won all 40 of its first 40 games, no ties, no losses, and then actually lost a 90-minute game for the first time over the weekend to Wolfsburg, 2-0 in that one, still 5-3 overall for Barcelona. And so they are no longer perfect, but they're in the final against Lyon. Ada Hegerberg is back. If you thought she might not be the same player after her knee injury, she's back. Terrific goals uh, against PSG at PSG with a good crowd there. And Leon advances in that game. So we talked last week about Hegerberg's already talking smack about Barcelona didn't reinvent the game of women's football. <laughs> so I can expect some of that over the coming weeks. And it's Leon, the team that won five straight European titles. Hegerberg, Katarina Macario, Lindsay Horan, and others against Barcelona, the juggernaut in the final and i'm pretty excited for this game yeah i'm, I'm trying to see if there are uh betting odds on this uh not, sure not, not not that i not that i intend to bet on it but i just kind of be curious who would be the favorite uh heading into this final oh just it's be- gotta be barcelona gotta be barcelona yeah i mean i but i mean leon leon has previous as well uh winning this competition so i i i do really find fascinating uh how how that matchup will play out i, I definitely would not read too much into a result where it's 5-1 in the first leg and a really good team uh, beats you 2-0. Um, although I guess it is you know, somewhat surprising that Barcelona loses any game that they play in. But yeah, this is certainly a huge narrative clash. This is a huge on-field clash. Get me in front of a television on May the 21st so I can watch this final because I think it's going to be a tremendous game that you, know, you talk about great adverts. Uh, you know, whenever whenever there's a good Premier League, oh, it's a great advert for the Premier League. Uh, the the Women's Champions League final, I can almost guarantee, be a great advert for the women's game, uh, both European and international. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about before we get to our Boris Gartner interview is on the U.S. side of things, the idea right now of destination games. For soccer in the U.S. where people are willing to travel across the country to go see this game because it's such a big deal for any number of reasons. And we're seeing a lot of those. So Friday night, Angel City has its first game at the bank in Los Angeles, opening game of the 10th NWSL season, and they win against North Carolina, full house, and everything about this game felt just big time. 
in a way that NWSL games don't ever often feel. And there's so much buzz around this team in LA, Angel City. And the fact that they actually performed on the field and got two really nice goals early, end up winning the game, and national television on the CBS Sports Network, and just the way everything seemed bigger. Um, just a, a, a really big moment. We can talk more about it in a second. But the other ones are Sunday, Nashville, 30,000-seat stadium debut in Nashville. Ends up being a 1-1 tie against Philadelphia. But yet another advance for stadiums in the United States. Full house there. Reese Witherspoon, part owner in the stands. Nashville SC. And then this Wednesday, I'm flying out to Seattle as are a lot of other people for the CONCACAF Champions League final, leg two, Seattle's at 2-2 against Pumas after leg one, 97th minute penalty, Nico Lodero converted both penalties for Seattle, and Seattle in the driver's seat here to do something truly historic. Uh, MLS team has never won the CONCACAF Champions League in the league format, which started in 2008. MLS team has never gone to the FIFA Club World Cup all of those things on the line here at home for Seattle on Wednesday night. I'll be out there writing about it for grantwall.com. And it just seems like there's this run of destination games right now that's really exciting. And I hope that uh, next Saturday as well, that San Diego Waves' first home game uh, will feel somewhat similar as they entertain Gotham FC. But yeah, to, to take them one by one... Um, I was kind of sat at home on a Friday night and I was looking at Twitter and I was, uh, there was no NBA on. So it was, you know, I, or actually the, the Memphis Minnesota game had just ended. So I was kind of like flipping through the channels. I was like, Oh, Angel City are playing. I could either watch this or the NFL draft. And the atmosphere really sucked me in. And I also thought that Angel City's quality of play in the first 15 minutes, yeah. they were zipping around the tempo. You can tell that the crowd made an appreciable difference on the way that the game was played. I, I've, I've watched a lot of NWSL games, and I've just never seen a tempo like that. And I have to think that was crowd-based. And I kind of wonder, if every stadium was filled like that every week, would there be that level of tempo, that level of play in every game? Because every game would feel big. And from a launch standpoint, I mean, Angel City could not have gotten better in terms of you have a win, you have a fun style of play. You have a great stadium because you know that's a great place to go watch a game. I've, I've seen a game there. It's tremendous to go. There's social video of Jennifer Garner leading the Capos in, 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 the, in the supporter <laughs> stand. That was tremendous. Like There was like everything you could want out of a first game to really signal yourself as we're going to be part of this community. We're going to be something that you want to attend every other Saturday night. What an occasion that was. And then you get to Nashville as well. And it's kind of interesting that I felt like this is probably the stadium launch with the least amount of fanfare just mm. because there have been 11. I saw MLS put out on Twitter since 2017. Uh, wow. If you include Orlando City's opening of Exploria Stadium, from there on in, it's just been one Orlando, one Cincinnati, one Columbus, one Austin after another. And all these venues are awesome. And I saw some people are saying that oh MLS like these stadiums kind of look similar, but they're all awesome looking. They all have, they all have great yeah. they have great atmosphere, and yet like you do kind of want to flip on a league and be like oh that's this league. And I think you're getting to that place where you turn on an MLS game and you know what league you're watching because of the look of the stadiums, because of the size mm -hmm. of the stadiums, and 
I think all these all these venues are amazing. Nashville looked like they really packed it in. They're the biggest soccer-specific stadium with 30,000 seats. That's a great city for MLS. I'm glad they have their own venue because I went to the USA game at Nissan Stadium in Nashville, and that's not a great venue for soccer. <laughs> so I'm glad that they have their own place now. That's going to be a really cool venue. I imagine they'll host uh, big U.S. games in the future. Sure. And that's that's another cool venue and then the champions league on wednesday how massive we haven't had the chance to talk about how that first leg went because we recorded before uh the champions league first leg seattle played some decent stuff at times they're probably a bit fortunate to get a couple penalties but it's Concacaf in their favor it's var in their favor and now all they got to do is just win a home game and they're champions of CONCACAF, and we finally conquered this Liga MX beast uh, that has haunted MLS for so long. And what a cool moment for that franchise, potentially, to be the first one to get it over the line. Because Seattle have meant so much to the development of the game in this country for the last 15 years. And for them to be the ones to finish the job for as well put together as that team is. You look at that starting lineup on Wednesday, and no, they did not put in a great performance, but it's still loaded with talent from back to front. That is a almost perfectly put together team to potentially get this done for Major League Soccer. What a huge moment. And that's going to be a sellout crowd. Everyone listened to Marshawn Lynch and bought some tickets. And uh, it's going to be a great atmosphere. And I can't wait to watch it. You know, it's late. God, it's late on a Wednesday night. These Champions League games have been late, man. Why? I know it's West 10, Coast, but why? 10.30 p.m. kickoff oh. last week, Eastern, uh, for the first leg. I think it's a 10 p.m. kickoff this week, Eastern. A little bit of a bummer, right? Just because you want as many people as possible to be able to see this potentially historic game. And it was a weird game, like one, right? Because it was 2-0 Pumas early in the second half. And when Pumas got the second goal, you're like, oh, no, this is really bad. This is danger zone time for Seattle. But they stuck with it and got the penalty to 2-1. And I would have thought 2-1 would have been a pretty deserved way to head back home and Seattle would have had a, a, a decent shot at it. But then the unexpected 97th minute penalty, Christian Roldan, good work to earn it. VAR ends up deciding it and a really bold move by the referee to give the penalty, you know, cause the Mexicans started throwing stuff on the field at that point. Uh, and then for Lodera to, to convert again, uh, really changes it. It makes it a completely different scenario for this return leg and a scenario in which Seattle should be favored to advance. We'll see what happens. We've been in this situation before, right? I remember in 2011 when Salt Lake was even returning home for the second leg of the final and did not win that game. I think it was Monterey. Um, so there's so much negative history, <laughs> so much <laughs> that we don't want to get into right now uh, for MLS that on the brink of something historic in a positive way, um, yeah, I really wanted to be out there. So I made my plane ticket uh, arrangements, got my credentials. I'll be wearing my CONCACAF hat, even if the CONCACAF people don't like it. And <laughs> it's going to be cool. I, I, I am really pumped for it. And um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just kind of neat to have these types of destination games that, that we've been talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I would I would love to join you in Seattle. It's a bit of a long flight from Miami. Um, I, I went to Portland for MLS Club. It's the only place that's even further in the contiguous United States. But uh, I, I'll be there in spirit, and I hope 
that I can stay up long enough to to watch it with you. It'll be after a Miami Heat playoff game, so that'll be my post game show, and hopefully I'll I'll have enough energy to make it to midnight. Um, but by the way, in, in terms of the betting odds, it seems like um, it's fairly even uh, huh. for 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 both of these teams. Um, Seattle are the favorites to win the game at at minus one hundred two. I'm looking at my bookie, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting that. But uh, and it's also weird that this competition has away goals and then it doesn't have away goals in the final. But you know, it's, it's, you could say interesting or ludicrous or Concacafi. Um, <laughs> not to not to besmirch the organization that's currently on your hat right now. But uh, yeah, I think I think Seattle Seattle will get this one over the line. I, I think I think they're gonna I think they're gonna do it. I think they're gonna win the Champions League for MLS for the first time. Can't wait to be a lot of fun, Chris. Lots that we just talked about. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Boris Gartner. Our guest now has had a huge influence on increasing the profile of Spain's La Liga in the United States and in the rest of North America. Boris Gartner is the CEO of La Liga North America, a joint venture between Relevant Sports and La Liga. Boris, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Good to see you, Grant. Thank you for having me. Lots to talk about here, but I'll I'll start by saying you started this job in August of 2018, and that was with the launch of La Liga North America. Could you explain to our listeners what your job is? Sure. It's it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, in short, uh, La Liga North America is basically the league office um, for La Liga in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Central America. Um, it started originally with a focus specifically in the U.S. and Canada, but as as we uh, set up the infrastructure for the joint venture and started putting kind of the basic pillars in place, uh, we expanded that. Uh, area of influence, let's say, to to Mexico and Central America. So as of today, basically anything that La Liga wants to do um, in these territories, um, that goes through through this joint venture, that goes through us. Just the nature of the joint venture. So it's a joint venture between La Liga and Relevant Sports. Our listeners might be familiar with Relevant Sports. That's the Steve Ross company, owner of the Miami Dolphins, real estate guy who... Um, Relevant Sports has put on a lot of summer exhibition games with the big clubs in the United States. Relevant has branched off into other things. They recently uh, acquired the rights to sell for the next round of Champions League television rights in the United States. Is there a reason that Relevant is part of this? It's not just a La Liga venture in the United States. Like, what does Relevant bring to the table? Yeah, and and actually, that's a that's a great point to highlight because, as, as you've mentioned, Relevant has been an incredible influence in the world of soccer in the U.S. for the past decade. Um, starting with with the events business that they built, you know, with the ICC, with the women's ICC, with ICC Futures, and it's the the company has shifted from that core events business to uh include also a media business that recently started with the with the La Liga joint venture um and as you said expanded now even more with the uh media partnership agency partnership with with UEFA uh for the Champions League and basically all the the club competitions from UEFA uh for the next cycle for you know, from a league perspective, um, I think that the whole concept behind this joint venture 
really um, started as as the league identifying the the U.S. market as a key growth market uh, for the league. You know, at that moment in in 2017, when they actually started having these conversations, um, getting ready for the next 10 years leading up to the 2026 uh, World Cup for sure, and having a partner like Relevant in the territory was a key part of that strategy because as, as you know, um, and unfortunately we see a lot of initiatives from international leagues and clubs that they you know clearly identify the US as a key market but fail to actually deliver on the execution. And for the league, from a very pragmatic perspective, they knew that they needed a local partner that knew the marketplace, uh, that lived and breathed, you know, soccer, um, and that had the financial wherewithal to actually support and accelerate the growth of the league in the territory. So I think that in, in you know, in a basic way to put it, um, the effort of the league to, uh, to branch out in the U.S., would have not been as successful as it has been without the support of a local partner like Relevant. No, it's really interesting because it's been a trend now over the last several years for soccer leagues, soccer teams and clubs to open a New York City office. And I've gotten used to seeing the press releases now, you know, X entity is opening a New York City office. And some of that I, to be perfectly honest, I feel like isn't actually doing much. And so I guess my question for you is how do you do more than just open an office? How do you actually make something work that is tangible uh, in, a, in a venture like this? And you're being politically correct. Um, <laughs> I would actually even take it a bit further. Um, you've seen a lot of press releases that are not more than press releases. Um, and it's, you know, clubs and leagues basically taking up a WeWork space in Park Avenue, putting out a press release saying, all right, the U.S. is a huge priority for us. We're opening an office and we're uh, committing resources. And in a year, you don't hear anything else. And when you ask, uh, you know, actually the office is no longer there. And, um, and I think that, you know, that hurts the growth of the sport in this country, to be honest, um, because I think that it gets the perception not only, I guess not so much, you know, by the fans, because the fans really don't, you know, get to see the impact of a, of a local office that much. But from the business side of things, from brands, you know, from media partners, from us, you know, in the, in the industry, that it almost be, be you know has become a pattern where you see one of this you know announcements and you know that it's a you know it's it's a question of timing when they're going to close and and you know if it's going to be serious or not from the beginning the challenging part is that for a lot of these leagues and clubs they see it as either a vanity project or or a marketing expense um and you know what it how it goes you know every time that there's a financial crunch or need first things that they cut are 
all right, how much is the leash in New York? And how much is it, you mm-hmm. know, two or three people that we have there? Yeah, cut that and and then let's go focus on, on our core business. I think that the main difference from what we've been able to do is that we've never seen this as, as a marketing expense. We've seen it as a business. And since the beginning, the way that this joint venture is structured is a 50-50 uh, joint venture for 15 years with an option to extend for an additional five years. So there was a long-term commitment baked into whole, into all of this since the beginning. Uh, and we had a 15-year plan, of course, that gets you know revised every year with a budget allocated with clear um, financial targets on the sponsorship side, on the media side. So we, we've been running this as a business and I can tell you that we're, we're, in, our, we're in our fourth year. Um, we're going to close this season uh, not only being profitable, which we are since last season, but we're going to be basically giving back to, to our partners relevant in La Liga close to $10 million. So, so we're generating $10 million in EBITDA. Um, we have a commercial operation that generates this year is going to be close to $11 million in regional sponsorship. So that's all of that. It's incremental. Um, you know, from the global deals that La Liga might do uh, with companies and partners like Verizon, um, Herbalife, uh, PointsBet. Uh, we have six, six, you know, sponsorship partners that generate that. And then we've done um, the two largest media rights deal that La Liga has done uh, outside of Spain. The uh, landmark deal that we did with ESPN here in the U.S. for eight years. And, uh, and the media rights deal in Mexico and Central America that we wrapped up late last year as well. So between those two, you have $2 billion worth of, of media rights deals that we've brought in. Um, so we're a clear revenue driver for the league. And so when you're in that position and you're generating value that's tangible, not just for the league, but as a, as a business, then you have the capacity to keep on investing and growing and having a team that's dedicated. And that's that's the main difference. You know, we're not subject to somebody in Madrid defining what the budget's gonna be for next year and if they wanna cut it or not based on whatever priorities. You know, it's interesting. I think it was maybe 2017, 2018. So I don't know if your project had even started yet, but I was contacted by a very well-known journalist globally who was working for La Liga in a consulting role and spent an hour on the phone being asked questions about what I thought would help La Liga in the United States. And I, I tried to help, you know, like, and, and one of the things I remember saying was, get on a better television channel that was in a, had a much bigger audience in the United States. And eventually that happened. And I'm not saying my my role had anything to do with it because uh, it took several years, but like I just thought that was really important. It, it did happen. And that move of La Liga to ESPN, what was your role in that? How did that process work? So the first thing is that I commissioned that research study. Uh, <laughs> that's the first thing when, when, when I came in. Um, I am, um, there's... I think there's a big difference between you instinctively thinking what you have to do versus getting the right research and validation. So that was one of the first things that I did when I joined was actually commission that that research okay. study that that the guy that interviewed you. So, um, but with that said, um, actually I'll tell you a, a fun story. My first week on the job, 
Um, and if you remember, so we launched August 2018 and being lost Comcast and DirecTV, AT&T at that time. So mm -hmm. we, we lost basically 50% of our distribution the moment that we had signed this joint venture and that we were launching this. So that was a curveball. Um, and we knew that um, being was and, and still is a very important global partner of La Liga. Um, they have the rights to, to the league in over 17 territories. They represent a, you know, an important part of our budget from a media rights uh, side of the, of the, of the business. Um, but we knew that as the media landscape in the U.S. was changing, they probably were not in a position to help us grow in the same way that they had in the past. Um, and so uh, when I came in, I did a big write-up of this is what my you know initial assessment is and sent it to, uh, to the president of La Liga. And, uh, and we got into a pretty interesting and heated you know, discussion uh, week one. Um, but... I guess that, you know, without getting into too many details, I, I got a couple of all caps emails, you know, um, uh, but I think that it that helped us get to an understanding of understanding the, the global impact of being as a partner. What was really the best path for the league in the U.S.? Um, so we started working on it from from day one. But as you know, with these things, there's a couple things. Again, just it, it, it is, in this case, beyond just one territory. And the second part of it is there's always that balance between the value of your rights or how much money you can get in the market versus distribution. Um, and a lot of things have changed, you know, since 2018. And I think that with the booming of streaming services and traditional media companies putting more money behind that, I think that has been a boon. Um, uh, and it's been great for, for soccer specifically, uh, but also understanding that when you go back to a club, which is at the end of the day who we serve, and ask them, what do you want? Do you want more distribution or you want more money? They'll all say, 100% of them will say, philosophically, well, we all want more distribution. We're in this for the long run. We want more people to see us. Um, we're thinking about how our brand is going to be perceived 10 years from now. And then you say, all right, great. You're going to get 30% less the money. Gonna, well, actually, give me the money. I need to pay this player. And, and so that's a balance that we, that we have to work, you know. Um, we were fortunate enough that uh, that we were able to get a deal that not only got us more distribution but more money. Mm -hmm. So um, it again, I, I think that the the, the long uh, or or sorry, the short of it is that balance is is real and then th that tension is real. Um, but I think that where we are today and we're very grateful for what Bean did for many years and again, the partnership that, they, that we have with them at a global level, but where we are today is definitely much better than where we were a couple of years ago. And it's an eight-year deal with ESPN. And is it accurate to say that the industry, including European soccer leagues, maybe even including UEFA, are starting to move toward longer deals than more traditional three-year deals where it seems like the channel can change every three years and, and there's not as much long-term investment. A hundred percent. And I think that, that, that you got to understand that how it's been done 
historically in those three-year terms or cycles, it's not different than how it's done in Europe for different reasons because they do it there from a regulatory perspective. And I think that for most uh, European leagues, it was, you know, just kind of the, the easy way to do it. You have, you know, that three-year restriction in Europe. You basically go out and do the deals on that same cycle. And for the most part, they all run them exactly on the same on the same date. So all the, all the deals are coterminous. Um, La Liga started actually shifting that a few years ago um, and started doing you know, ad hoc deals on different territories, depending on what they saw it was fit. But the mentality of the three-year term was still there. I think the first European league that did a longer deal was the EPL on their last uh, NBC deal, six years. Right. Um, Bundesliga did the new deal with ESPN for so six years. We have ours on, on eight years. Um, Serie A, has the same three-year deal because there's an additional law in Italy, the Melandri law, that creates another complication, you know, even though you could argue that doesn't apply here. But anyway, without getting into too much detail on that, um, at least for us, and I think it's the same case as, as you see for some of the others, you need a partner more than a deal. A deal you can get wherever. And for us, in our current deal with ESPN, um, since the beginning, we were talking about a partnership. And what could the company do beyond just paying the rights fee that we believed our rights were worth? Um, and how were they investing in growing the product? And our understanding very simply, very simply was you cannot expect them to develop uh, uh, or, or put a lot behind the product if you're going to have year one, that's the getting to know each other year two when you're getting into the groove then you have a, another tender again um so that that you know feeling and and sentiment of partnership is what's ended up uh taking us to longer deals which is the way that american leagues do it here anyway so that's what what um, a lot of these companies are used to i do think that you're going to continue to see more and more of those properties doing longer term deals um you're going to find that media companies are willing to spend more on a you know annual basis on longer term deals than shorter term deals and you're going to get more people interested in bidding and participating in the in the offering of your rights how's it going so far with espn incredibly well um, again, I think uh, I've said it a couple different times. We couldn't have had a, a better partner. Um, they're amazing in the um, in the effort, the respect, and the passion that they put to the product. Um, not just again from the from the you know deal side of things, but just in the day to day. Um, everybody at at ESPN. Uh, from Jimmy Pitaro, Burke Magnus, Tim Bono, uh, Sonia Gomez, who does our day today, uh, they're all incredibly committed to to the product. We have weekly calls with different uh, teams on their side just to keep a, a, a close eye on it, uh, track it, improve it, tweak it, and definitely dealing with a with a company like the like the Walt Disney company is a is a great privilege uh, when they decide that they're gonna throw their whole uh, machine behind something they deliver so I'll give you an example on the on the classical on the last classical um, 
the promotion that they were running spots on uh, ABC around NBA games. They had uh, Times Square billboards. They had, uh, you know, on their theme park, they were advertising it just everywhere. So when you have that huge machine, um, I think that 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 builds your property in a much better way um, than just the traditional channels. Yeah, it's it's really interesting just how ESPN does what they do. It's interesting, too, to me that when we first learned that Lionel Messi was leaving Barcelona for PSG ahead of this season, it seemed like really bad news for La Liga and its first season on ESPN. But I don't feel like it has turned out that way. What happened to make Messi's departure less of a problem for La Liga than maybe expected? I think that there's always a, an initial reaction when some of you know something like this happens that it's you know blown out of proportion. I I, I don't know if you remember when when Ronaldo left. Um, it was kind of the same. Oh, this is the demise of La Liga. Nobody's gonna watch anymore. Um, and two things happen. One. Our viewership actually continued to go up, but two, Serie's viewership didn't go up. You know, so yes, of course, having stars on your teams and on your league is a huge plus, and we would love to have, still have Messi, still have Ronaldo, have Mbappe, Haaland. Of course, all of that helps. And not even just on the players, on the coaching side. You know, having Pep and Mourinho, like all of that helps. But when you don't have them, it the effect, the negative effect is not as big as you would imagine. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's more important to have a competitive league and to have different storylines beyond just, in this case, those two stars that help drive the narrative and the storytelling around the league. I mean, it's been, you know, from from that perspective, with Messi leaving, with Barcelona struggling, um, it was a perfect cocktail for, for things to have gone wrong. And I think, of course, viewership has improved significantly. There is a lot of interest in actually taking up, picking on Barcelona for a second. On, all right, are they going to really tank or are they going to you know come back? And Xavi came in and then the whole interest around Xavi... Um, even with Dani Alves coming back, a ton of interest in that storyline. And the other thing that we've actually done to kind of counter that a bit as well has been to focus on telling stories that are probably not the Real Madrid-Barcelona stories that, that you would think are the only ones that drive interest and viewership. Um, but specifically here in the U.S., for example, we focus a lot on Real Betis. Real Betis has... Andres Guardado, Diego Lainez, probably the you know, top five, you know, Mexican national team players. Um, and there's a very interesting of Guardado kind of getting towards the end of his career and Lainez coming up. Now we have Tecatito in Sevilla. So we've, we've actually built the capability of telling all of this, let's call it smaller stories that resonate with a smaller uh, niche audience but that when you actually tell those stories in aggregate you end up having the same impact as, as telling one Messi story or one Ronaldo story so if we are doing it in that way you're actually building community in a much more um, 
organized way to put it and 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 an organic way um and that way you also kind of decrease a little bit the reliance on the on the big two having said that it's not that we're not going to continue to leverage the narratives and the stories that come from real madrid and barcelona because it's sort of the you know two biggest brands in in soccer how many years total have you been working now in the united states and and what have you learned about sports fans and soccer fans in the United States over the past few years. Yeah, so I'm originally from Colombia and I know that we're not releasing a video, but as you can see from my jersey <laughs> in the in the background, I moved to the US in 2006 um, and my background is in media. So I, I spent uh, almost eight years at Univision, worked at Televisa as well in Mexico City and then at a joint venture between Univision and the Disney company. So I, th I come from, from kind of that media background. And specifically, a lot of the work that I did before was in the younger uh, Hispanic uh, demographic, second, third generation. And so really understanding the type of behaviors and, and consumption habits from, from the core Hispanic demo in this country but again, the younger second, third generation, which in, in a way is the uh, entry point to the general market, young multicultural demographic that this country is kind of seeing a, a huge growth in. And so coming from that experience, when what you realize is that the main two drivers for that uh, demographic is soccer and music. Um, soccer first. And so having the opportunity to work on a property like La Liga that has a huge core Hispanic fan base, uh, both first generation and second, third generation, it was a very easy transition for me. And so the way that we structure the operation and what we have here and what I can tell is the success of what we've done, we have a content-centric strategy. So the first thing that, that we did uh, was we... we stood up a content studio in Guadalajara. So we have close to 20 people working in the studio there. We're creating more than 20 digital shows every week in English and in Spanish that are focused on the, on, on, on the storytelling around the league beyond the 90 minutes of the matches and specifically thinking about this, you know, U.S. soccer fan specifically. Um, and that has allowed us to uh, grow the awareness of the league um, and actually learn a lot about what the future of soccer in this country uh, will be, to be honest. And again, looking at the next, you know, four years as, as our uh, primary focus leading to the 2026 World Cup. It's really interesting to me. This summer is actually an interesting summer because there's no major men's international tournament this summer with the world cup being moved to november december so like literally the biggest summer tournament is the women's euros so teams european men's club teams in preseason theoretically will have all of their best players and i'm i'm wondering i assume we might see some more official announcements to come how many teams from la liga do you think we might see visiting the United States this summer. So there's there's that, but then there's also the fact that they haven't been able to come to the U.S. in the last three years. Right. Um, so you have those two things uh, piling, let's say. And and again, the 
clear priority of, of the U.S. being a, a key growth market for for most of them. I think you're going to see a number of clubs, and we've seen some announcements already. Um, I think the main problem with that is that the concept of the friendly games that are not part of a tournament or something that means something has gone down in value for the fan. And I mean, you you can give me your perspective, but uh, what used to be a great moment and opportunity to see those European teams come here and play in the US, it kind of has went down a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yes, it is a great opportunity to do marketing, but I think that the clubs and, and in our case, the leagues have to really think more about the 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 new soccer fan in the US. This is not no longer a novelty. I mean, you can watch, I don't think there has been any other moment in the history that you've been able to watch as many uh, soccer matches than now. Um, yes, it's fragmented and you need to have a bunch of services, but you're in reality, you're not gonna be watching everything, but you'll be able to watch whatever you wanna watch. Um, so I think that also, removes a little bit the the novelty of seeing the the teams here um the way that we look at it um specifically is having the teams come is a good opportunity as long as it's tied to a broader strategy of developing the brand not only of the league but of those clubs here if you're just showing up for two games it's not really going to do a lot are we any closer today than in the past to actual games of La Liga potentially taking place on United States soil. Is that something that we should just give up on that idea or where are we? I don't think we should give up on it for for many reasons, but I think that the, the first one is that I don't think there's anyone here that is interested in, in seeing the sport grow that can tell you that it's, this is going to be counterproductive for that. Once you've established that, you might have specific interest and mainly on the business side and the political side that you could argue one way or another. But having official matches in the US will help grow the sport? I think the answer is yes. Now, how do we do it so that it's actually constructive and it's more than just having the one event and you're out? And in our case, and we're not just looking to bring league matches and that's it. I mean, we've, we've established that we have a long-term view and plan for the growth on not just of La Liga in the U.S., but soccer in general, that we've invested significant amount of money, that we're now generating more and we're profitable and we're, that's great, but we've actually invested and we continue to invest every year. And so when you add an official game on top of that, then it makes sense. Um, I don't think, you know, there's some people that I, I remember when, when, you know, and we're, but actually, parents, we're still pushing for it. There's two ongoing legal processes, one in the US, one in Spain. I don't think it's going to be a matter of, of if, but when. Um, and again, I think that as we get closer to that 2026 World Cup moment, I think that we all need to rally around making sure that this sport is as big as it possibly can so that when we get to that 2026 moment is going to be what all of us are expecting to be and i don't think that league matches are the only thing that you can do but it's definitely one of those key components um so having having said that um i think that a lot of the misconceptions from we want to bring league matches and that concept was oh it's going to open the floodgate and all of a sudden you're going to have 
10 league matches from La Liga and 10 from Serie A and the EPL. And honestly, that argument is not really knowing soccer and not really knowing, you know, the football culture in Europe um, because it's going to be already hard to take one game out. Um, and I think that that ends up breaking the model. So I think that if you end up doing it in an organized way, um, it, it should be, you know, uh, of added value for everyone. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to address? Anything that's important to, to what you're doing or, or the future in the years ahead? Yeah, I think that the, the one other, you know, thing that, that we think about a lot is every time that I'm having a conversation like this, right, so, so your competition is MLS or Liga MX or EPL. And I, I think that that's looking at it in the wrong way. Um, the sport is, is still at a stage here in this country that we need a lot of people to do as much as they can possibly uh, do to help grow the sport. So I don't think I'm competing for the attention of the fan with MLS or Liga MX. And when you actually understand the soccer fan in the U.S., you're not only a fan of one league or one team. You know, when, you know, a lot of the research that, we, that we've done, um, if you're talking to a U.S. Hispanic um, from Mexican descent, their first team is America or Chivas or Tigres or whatever it is. Um, 95% of the time, they have a second team that they follow. Happens to be, you know, a La Liga team, if you're you know, Mexican primarily, and that changes depending on your demographic. But there's not an either or, you know, kind of approach to fandom of soccer in this country. So I think that from the executive level, the journalists, you know, the content producers, they all need to realize that um, MLS having a great audience on one of the games is not, you know, uh, hurting USL or EPL or vice versa. It's all accurate. I lied. I have one more question for you. I'm so sorry. Um, one of the big sports stories globally of the last few months is the Barcelona women's team and how they have filled the Camp Nou now for two separate games, more than 91,000 people. What is sort of the structure? Like, is La Liga connected to the women's league and the women's teams in Spain at all. I, I had a guest on recently who talked about a new formation of the women's league coming mm -hmm. in Spain. Is that separate from what you do or is there any connection? No. So it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit nuanced, but most of the uh, Iberdrola, that's a women's league in Spain, uh, most of the teams are either affiliated or part of men's teams so that's the that's the connection the competition itself up until now was organized and managed by the spanish federation what they've passed a law now is actually allowing those teams to set up their independent structure in the same way as la liga has it for the men's teams um, there has been historically a lot of coordination between the league and these clubs again basic basically just due to the ownership structure. Um, and you'll continue to see that. But for the first time, you're going to have an independent uh, league and organizing uh, body that's going to manage the women's game. That's huge because for the first time, the priorities of that team that's going to be managing is that and only that. 
Um, I think you're going to see a lot more coordination with, with La Liga, of course, to leverage everything that the league is doing and that the same teams are doing on the men's side. Um, but I think that it's, it's, it's a great moment for that to happen because there's a lot more interest from the fans, um, from brands, from media companies in, in just showcasing the women's game. Um, so this was the right time to do it. And in a way, um, I see the business opportunity uh, in a similar way as how, uh, how I see the business opportunity for the NWSL and the women's game here in the U.S. Um, a lot of interest, even with the example that, that you're putting on, on the Barcelona women's team in Camp Nou, um, at the same time that these guys are, or these gals are getting 90,000, you know, uh, fans to show up, the men's team is getting... 57, 58, which is kind of average of what, they, what they've been getting. So now it's not, no longer right. It happened once, it was the final, and that's it. It's being consistent. You're seeing the fans actually show up um, and support it in a very similar way. Um, so it's exciting. And I think that in the U.S. specifically, in the, the, the history of the women's national team, um, now at the NWSL, I'm really bullish with what's going to happen with the new management structure there and actually really pushing the league. I think that the, that one of the big key drivers of the growth of the sport between now and, again, 2026 and even beyond is going to be the women's game. Boris Gartner is the CEO of La Liga North America, a joint venture between Relevant Sports and La Liga. Boris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Boris Gartner as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.